This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Listen as leading experts go beyond the headlines and political ping-ponging to discuss how the law can combat the climate crisis. Defending the Planet is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defendingtheplanet for more. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. We are down in Alex Lawson this week. Yeah, Alex was finally let go from his performance during the Devil's Advocate podcast. It was it turned out there were just too many Al Pacino impressions for, you know, for the higher ups here at Law 360. Look, people can only take so much, and it was just a matter of time that before that caught up with Alex. He's he's pushed the boundaries of Al Pacino impersonations <laughs> for years. So it was inevitable. Uh, but we should say uh, the the movie club is continuing. Uh, we are doing uh, the movie Loving next week, which will be we, we just recorded it. It's a, it's an I think we had an excellent conversation about a very good movie. Yeah, it was our first time digging into a movie that is all based on true events. So it was a really interesting one to talk about. I hope hope people like that show when it comes out next week. Yeah, it's about um, the uh, Supreme Court case that struck down the ban on interracial marriage. The The case was um, Loving v. Virginia. Um, just a great little movie, and we had, a, we had a fun talk about it. But we have a good show for this week, right? Yeah, we sure do. We, we talked to our Boston court reporter, Chris Villani, and he gives us an insight into something I hadn't even really thought about going on with the pandemic. Um, there's so many tendrils into the legal world as we continue to navigate COVID, and what we talk about with Chris is how some courts are considering mandating vaccines for jurors. And that can lead to uh, a lot of downstream problems, potentially, about whether or not that skews jury pools. So Chris uh, comes on, gives us a lot of insight into that. Yeah, it seems it's one of those things where your first instinct is, well, it, you know, this is great. That's easy. Just tell everyone to get a vaccine. And then you think through it for for a second and you're like, oh no, this this causes all sorts of Definitely. downstream unintended consequences. I feel like um, that's everything with the pandemic, right? It's yeah. like, oh no, just do this one thing. Oh wait, that's going to complicate X and Y. And this is definitely one of those stories. Yeah. Um, but before then, I know you wanted to update us on um, Law360 put out its its yearly look at law firm diversity. And you wanted to give us some of the top line numbers from that. I did. I don't want to get too in the rabbit hole here because it's a very robust report. Our data team did just a tremendous job, as they always do on this. But every year, Law360 surveys law firms uh, basically about their headcount and, and figures out um, how they're faring with diversity and inclusion. Um, there's obviously been a national reckoning over the past year, year and a half over racial injustice. And that's definitely pushed firms to look for ways to improve diversity in their ranks. But most of those kind of initiatives take a lot of time. So things, you know, like boosting the pipeline for attorneys of color, that can be a years long process. So we're not seeing the fruits of those labors just yet. Um, this is a good year, though, to talk about the top line to sort of see where we are. And then this time next year, we'll see if more things have, have taken root. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, changing your practices in terms of what law schools you go to and how you recruit from law schools. It's a lot of sort of long tail stuff. But 
tell us what where where we are now and what the what this this most recent report showed. So for this most recent report, just over 18% of attorneys and about 10% of all partners at the firms that were surveyed are racial or ethnic minorities. That's really similar to last year. So if you're imagining in your mind a chart over time, the last six or seven years, numbers are going up year over year, but just barely. So that little graph is just ticking a teeny bit up each year. Mm -hmm. So for all attorneys, the percentage of racial or ethnic minorities has gone up less than one percentage point over this past year. Um, There are some other little breakout things that I found really interesting in the report, though. One of them was this. Asian American attorneys are actually the largest minority group working at law firms, but they are less likely than either black or Hispanic attorneys to be partners. It's an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, I found that a bit surprising. So the numbers there, um, 24% of Asian lawyers are partners. That's compared to 27% of black attorneys, 30% of Hispanic attorneys. And then when you look at attorneys of color um, versus uh, white attorneys and how they're breaking down between non-partnership ranks and partnership ranks, more attorneys of color are non-partners than partners. But white attorneys are almost evenly split. So that just really Mm. shows um, what we've seen in all of the data over many years, but this year included, is that diversity really dips the higher up the ranks of the law firm you go. So, you know, you're sort of losing people at every stage. Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up was um, sort of another interesting thing we discovered this year In addition to corporations who are hiring big firms being interested in the gender of the attorneys that will be staffed on their matters, the racial and ethnicity, um, the makeup of the people that they'll be working with, many companies are also asking questions about whether the attorneys staffed on their projects will be part of the LGBTQ community or have a self-reported disability. So Mm -hmm. sort of fleshing out all of the metrics of diversity. This year, Law360 asked firms if they're even keeping data on those two points. Um, So that would be, again, LGBTQ or disabilities. Most firms that participated in our survey said they are tracking information about self-identified members of the LGBTQ community, but only about 57% said they are compiling similar data on attorneys with disabilities. So this is a little bit of a window into the future, an area where Firms may need to, first of all, just start doing better tracking to figure out if attorneys with disabilities are being represented, you know, fairly throughout the industry. Because right now we just don't 100% know what's going on there. Right. I mean, we talked about the long tail of to you make changes and then the changes manifest themselves over time. But it's e- it's an even longer process if you're not even collecting the data yet. So you have to start collecting the data analyzing it and then yeah. making changes that can then lead to longer changes. So it is a long road, but hopefully, you know, showing that only, you know, only about half of firms are compiling that information will lead to, you know, in the longer term, an effort to create more opportunities for um, attorneys dealing with disabilities. Yeah, I'd say that, you know, the overall takeaway from the report this year, it's interesting as always to see a, a little uptick in diversity, but um disappointing that things don't move more more quickly and and changes aren't more robust in this area. So another one to watch to look keep track of those numbers. You can see how you know firms are stacking up against one another, that kind of thing which can be very interesting if you're working at one of those places. So I'd really recommend that people check out the full report. 
Yeah, our team uh, always does. We should just say again, they always do an amazing job with these reports. It's it's very illuminating data, and there's a lot to dig through, so it's great stuff. Um, uh, we're going to pivot back to talking about a little bit of um, uh, COVID stuff and, and looking back at what was a, a very interesting and novel effort by um, Arizona State University to fight COVID uh, disinformation, misinformation on social media, something we've heard so much about since the beginning of the pandemic, um, by using trademark law, which is uh, something near and dear to my heart. Um, but I think more importantly, we're talking about how this week that effort was rejected by a federal judge. Bill, I love when trademark law gets a weird wrinkle like this. It's always so fun to talk about with you. Um, it kind of reminds me, we're talking about COVID and trademarks. It reminds me of when um, PPE was being sold for marked up prices and, and 3M in particular and some other companies use trademark law to try to forestall that problem. But this is a much later stage in the pandemic, a different way to use trademark law to keep things in check. What happened here? So it was last summer, uh, you know, leading up to this first fall of students returning, you know, after the pandemic had started and an account called ASU underscore COVID dot parties. (laughs) So just ASU COVID parties um, popped up on Instagram and it was encouraging students to attend parties without masks. It was saying that the pandemic was a hoax, uh, that you know that that it was really spreading a lot of the the information that i think a university as they were trying to very very carefully reopen in a pandemic were really trying to tamp down on and um more importantly they were doing it using some of the school's trademarks the first post for example featured the asu logo obviously the name of the account has asu in it uh the colors were were in there and it said quote no more social distancing no more masks it's time to party. So pretty straightforward stuff. Later posts, uh, you know, as I said before, mentioned that they said that COVID was a hoax. Another said that partying was protected by the First Amendment's right to peaceably assemble, which I think just I as mean, a general sentiment look, that rocks. I mean, I disagree with a lot of what this account was saying, but I'm on board for that one. Sure. Um, lots of profanity. There was some weird Nazi references, just classic internet stuff. So the school submitted a takedown request to Instagram, but they were rebuffed. They said, Instagram said, no, these people are commenting. They're criticizing the school, free speech, and so on. Um, so the school sued in federal court, accusing both Facebook and this anonymous poster of infringing the school's trademarks, both the name and the use of the logos and the colors in post. They said, this is a use of our trademarks. Uh, it needs to come down as a result of that. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me from the trademark standpoint, but you said that this was actually a novel effort. So why exactly is this novel? Yeah, I mean, novel, creative, whatever you want to call it. They were clearly using trademarks as a vehicle to do something other than what trademarks are designed to do, right? Uh, Trademarks protect against someone else using your own commercial goodwill you've built up in a commercial setting. So this is not that. I mean, they're not, they weren't out there advertising that they were, you know, a different school and they were using ASUs. I mean, that's a overly reductive example, but um, so this, this was not exactly the basic trademark case, but their intentions were good. You know, they were using it as this creative vehicle to go after something. And as you mentioned, Amber, at the, at the outset, this is one of several cases during the pandemic that used 
that got creative in how they use trademarks to go after people who were, you know, maybe exploiting the pandemic or doing bad stuff during the pandemic. For for instance, 3M filed a, a whole boatload of trademark cases that were aimed at price gouging for their masks. That's not exactly, again, what we think of with trademarks, but they were saying, look, if you're selling our masks with our logo on it, even if they are legitimate and they're not counterfeit or whatever, um, you have a legitimate right to resell them. You do not have a legitimate right to resell them at 2000% of their of their price. That looks bad for us. So, um, you know, that was another example of someone using this type of law to go after something that you don't typically think of as trademark infringement. Yeah, and that feels pretty similar because it really does, they both really center over the reputation of the brand. Um, and that's right. the same thing with, with this instance as well. But here it it didn't work. It did not. We got a ruling this week. So before we get to that, the, the case sort of meandered for a little bit. Facebook was dropped from the case. They agreed to suspend the account. So they, you know, once they, <laughs> once they got hauled into court, they were like, okay, yes, we'll do this. Um, <laughs> uh, so from a practical standpoint, I mean, the school did accomplish some of their goal. Um, the anonymous person who was behind this account um, uh, filed, or so someone who claimed to be the anonymous person behind the account filed these ridiculous sort of profane answers with the court. They were promptly stricken. So that left us with ASU moving for default judgment and um, a, a permanent injunction shutting down this account. Um, but a federal judge in Arizona rejected that this week. They ruled that the school might have had very noble intentions behind bringing this case, but they couldn't actually show that this person had infringed any trademarks. Um, there's a quote from the ruling that is long, but I think pretty illuminating and pretty unusual. Quote, this is an unusual case. On one side is a major public university that seeks to use our nation's trademark laws in novel ways in an effort to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. On the other side is a deeply unsympathetic John Doe defendant who posted a series of vulgarity-filled messages on Instagram in an attempt to persuade college students to attend maskless COVID-19 parties during the peak of the first wave of the pandemic. Although ASU's motivations for bringing this lawsuit are understandable, ASU has not established that Doe's challenge conduct, however odious it may be, implicates the trademark doctrines identified in ASU's complaint. I mean, I hear what the judge is saying there, but really like that it was made very clear that this is an unsympathetic, odious account. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know. I guess th th there's, you know, we should sort of be alarmed by big, powerful actors using the law in ways that it shouldn't be used. Um, so, you know, that's sort of what the judge is pushing back at. They can say that, you know, you're doing this for a good reason, but that's a lot of times good reason is subjective. So um, it's an interesting situation. But yes, the judge was saying, look, I get why you were doing this, but um, this is not what the law is designed to do. Specifically, the judge said that the problem with the case was that nobody was going to confuse the this Instagram account with official missives from, the, the, from a major public university. And that's what it would have needed to prove trademark infringement. They would have needed to say, look, people think this is ASU doing this. The judge cited... Um, posts that criticized ASU. That doesn't look like something that the school would do themselves. Um, uh, the, the posts that likened the university to Nazis. Um, he also specifically cited one post that, that um, as an example of something that the, a school would not tell its own students, it, it included the quote, and Steve, get the bleep button ready. We about to get f***ing lit. The judge, <laughs> the, the judge looked at that post and said, quote, 
Although it is not uncommon for universities to attempt to appeal to students by imitating their vernacular, no university would drop the F-bomb in an official party invitation. Also, the speaker plans to get, quote, lit, which in context clearly means drunk. A reasonably prudent consumer would not have construed this as an invitation from ASU to come to an ASU-sponsored party. So, Bill, Bill, I'm so yeah. glad we talked about this. Nothing makes me happier than a judge having to explain lit. That's yeah. great. I love, I love that that is now in the uh, the official canon of federal court rulings. That we now have a we have judicial guidance on what get fucking lit means. Uh, we needed it. Uh, we really needed that. Um, but yeah, so interesting case, um, you know, not, not a groundbreaking thing, but it's, it's, it sort of illuminates the way that people were, you know, reaching around and trying to figure out what they could do to stop some of the bad stuff they were seeing during the pandemic. Doesn't always work. Um, uh, but it's, you know, I think companies and schools and everyone else dealing with this felt like they needed to try. Once again, we wanted to remind you that this week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's Defending the Planet, a new podcast about how the law can help confront the global climate crisis. Listen to Defending the Planet on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defending the planet for more. Vaccine mandates have become more common in recent weeks as the highly transmissible Delta variant has driven up the number of COVID infections. Courts are considering whether to require vaccines for jurors. But that's raising questions about whether a mandate might cause disparities across racial and political lines that could skew jury pools. Here to talk with us about the possible impacts of juror vaccine mandates is our Boston court reporter, Chris Villani. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. We've got a, another COVID story to talk about here, and I'd like to get into kind of the big picture about why courts are in particular considering vaccine mandates for jurors. Sure. Well, it's largely for a lot of the same reasons that vaccine mandates are being rolled out elsewhere. It's scientifically the best defense against COVID and also this highly transmissible, more contagious Delta variant. And for juries, it presents a number of somewhat unusual, if not unique, challenges. In many courtrooms, you don't have the space for jurors to adequately social distance, even if they're all wearing masks. When it comes time for jury deliberations, I know in the Boston courthouse, they have enough space that they're able to put the juries in another empty courtroom. So it's upwards of 2,000 or 2,600 square feet. There's plenty of room to space out. You don't have that everywhere. You might have juries in a regular jury deliberation room, which could be the size of a regular sized or even small conference room to put 12 people in there. There's no way to adequately social distance. So one of the best ways, one of the best mitigation strategies would be to make sure that everybody's vaccinated. And as a judge, you only have control over so many people in the courtroom. You can't, for example, exclude a vaccinated or unvaccinated witness. But the jurors, there is an element of control there and people can be excused from jury service for a variety of reasons. And some judges are at least considering the idea of COVID-19 vaccination status being another one of those reasons. 
From a public health perspective, it seems like very low-hanging fruit. But as Amber mentioned at the up top and as as your story sort of ably laid out, um, this is raising tricky questions from a legal perspective. Walk us through those. Sure. So there's no bigger sign of vaccine disparity right now than politics. And that's borne out here locally in Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts is, for all intents and purposes, a, a one-party state, or at least a supermajority uh, of Democrats and left-leaning folks. It's one of the more vaccinated states in the country, but still the largest percentage, largest swath of unvaccinated people here, polls show, uh, are Republicans or those who lean right. And that trend plays out nationally as well. So uh, there's a concern about skewing jury pools along political lines. Now, what practical effect could that have? I, I think we saw it play out in the uh, litigation in Ohio, where a federal judge initially said he was going to have a vaccine mandate for a jury. And it was the pharmacy defendants, the corporate defendants uh, in that case, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS and the like, who asked him to reconsider. And this is a multi-district opioid litigation. But those big corporate defendants, they want Republicans generally, right? They want people who are going to be more likely to side with a corporate defendant over a plaintiff who is harmed or an environmental group. It, it, just statistically, it's the way it bears out in large sample sizes. So that's one potential issue. There's also vaccine disparities based on race, which could affect the racial makeup of juries. So that's obviously a concern. If you have, for example, of a, a minority defendant, you could see defense lawyers bringing challenges that they had a less diverse jury pool than they otherwise would have had because of this vaccine mandate. So that's a potential issue there. And going back to the political skew, it could also be an issue for prosecutors, right? They want law and order types. They want people who are going to trust what an FBI agent might say on the witness stand. So those are the types of concerns that uh, attorneys are raising. And those are the types of issues that could pop up if you see jurors excused based on vaccination status, especially in areas where there's a much lower percentage of vaccinated people. In Massachusetts, maybe it wouldn't make as big a, a practical difference as a place like Ohio, certain states in the South. Yeah, it seems like you've laid out there that this can cut a few different ways depending on who's vaccinated in an area. Um, when you were talking to attorneys about the story you wrote about this, what did trial lawyers think about it? I mean, were they uh, very concerned or did this seem to be something that is going to play out differently in different jurisdictions? Well, it, it's really twofold. I don't think many trial attorneys, even if they are very pro-vaccine and would love to see people get vaccinated against COVID-19, even if they even if that's the case, I don't think from a public policy perspective or a legal policy perspective, they're in favor of the jury vaccine mandates for a lot of the reasons I just talked about, the potential skew jury pools, not getting a representative uh, cross-section of the public. So that's a, a concern that was brought up. The other part of it, though, is is most attorneys weren't really convinced they would have had much of a leg to stand on in order to challenge it. So if you want to bring this challenge, it's, it's going to come, practically speaking, for one of the litigants. People are always looking for ways to get out of jury duty. I don't know that you'd find <laughs> that uh, just erstwhile juror who really wanted to be on a panel and thinks it's so unfair that <laughs> she was excluded because she's not vaccinated and she's going to bring a legal challenge. <laughs> and she'd have no leg to stand on anyway. Jury service isn't a right. So 
the onus then would be on one of the litigants. So in this case, they were successful in Ohio to get the judge to reconsider. Had he not changed his mind, it would have been difficult, lawyers say, to really show that this vaccination mandate is a de facto stand-in for some other protected class. And I don't think I included this in the story, but one of the examples, sort of a silly example, would be you say, okay, raise your hand if you're vaccinated. You have a pool of, say, 50 potential jurors, and there are 15 jurors who are either Black or Hispanic. They all raise their hand that they're not vaccinated, and they're all excused, leaving 35 white people. There you have a de facto stand-in for discrimination, I guess you could say, or elimination of a protected class in the jury pool. Short of being able to show that, it would be pretty difficult to 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 really challenge and and this was in the story a law professor pointed out this sort of a stand in this sort of a of a of a skewing of jury pools it's not something that's going to show up in one jury trial or three jury trials or maybe even 10 jury trials you need a pretty large sample and then maybe you look and see okay certain zip codes certain counties certain areas are far less represented on actual panels than they were prior to this mandate there's enough data to suggest that this is having an actual tangible effect so it's a difficult thing to show so attorneys are wary of it short of asking a judge to change his or her mind they are not sure that there's a whole lot they could do about it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see as the months and years go by if this comes up on appeal or, you know, as this sort of situation matures, as you said, and the sample size gets bigger. Um, your story mentioned uh, some, some you know, some of the stuff that you've been covering in, in Boston uh, recently involving the Varsity Blues case, um, which I thought gave sort of an interesting look at the practical way that judges are dealing with this. Could you walk us through what, what, you've, what you've been seeing? Sure. So uh, there's a few, well, a number of jury trials have already played out here in Massachusetts. I mean, the courts are open. They're as open for business as they can realistically be at this point. Varsity Blues is going ahead with its trial uh, in September. There's no discussion whatsoever about any sort of vaccination mandate or even inquiring about vaccination status for any of the parties, uh, any of the participants. I I think it's really a judge by judge thing, and you'll probably see this across the country. Uh, And maybe there's a political skew there, too, because the judge in the Varsity Blues case is a Republican, appointed by a Republican. But uh, he has not really shown too much concern about the Delta variant. He's not even mandating masking uh, in the courtroom. In the corruption case involving uh, a former uh, tribe chair here in Massachusetts, the judge has been very concerned about vaccination status, although he was actually also appointed by a Republican now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, he wants to know the vaccination status of everybody that's in his courtroom that he has control over. So again, the litigants, the parties, and potentially the jurors. And that was sort of where this this whole story came about and where this came up was he floated the idea of a jury vaccination mandate. Now, for a number of reasons, public health chief among them, this trial was pushed off until January. I think they're running into the issue of they need to, there's only so many jury pools they can bring in and they really need to try to get to folks who have not been convicted and are in custody as opposed to the majority of your vast majority of your white collar defendants who are not in custody and can maybe wait a little bit longer for their day in court. So this trial has been pushed off until January and 
It'll be interesting to see whether uh, he maintains this this jury vaccination mandate. I can tell you that because that trial was pushed off, there's now a number of hearings and some more motion practice that's going to happen between now and January. And he has said that he wants the lawyers in the court because he knows about their vaccination status, and, and presumably they all are. But media and the public and anybody else who's interested in any of these public hearings coming up they've got to log in via Zoom. He, he just doesn't want people in the courtroom if he doesn't know their vaccination yeah. status. So I, I think it's going to be judge by judge, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's just the way it plays out across the country unless and until there's some sort of overarching uh, guidance from the, uh, from the federal court system. Chris is so interesting, especially that last bit, just comparing even just in Boston courts that judges are taking this case by case and, and according to their own preferences. So interesting to hear that this is going on. Um, Thanks a lot for being with us today. My pleasure. Anytime. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Bill, I know you want to talk about pizza today. We are talking about pizza, um, a subject near and dear to my heart. It is Pizza Friday. Uh, But what we're really talking about, in addition to pizza, is a very interesting back and forth between a district judge and an appellate court um, that resulted in the district judge basically refusing to do what the appellate court told him to do. It's very, it was. It was very bold, and and uh, it caught a lot of eyeballs this week. Well, I love that. I'm intrigued already. Um, why don't you just lay out the facts of what happened here so we can get into it? So <laughs> so there's these two Manhattan eateries. One is a pizza place. One is an Italian restaurant. They both go by Patsy's. Um, they have been suing each other for literally three decades, since the 1990s. It's And I think it's a real testament to... The story that we're about to tell you that that is not actually the funny hook here. Uh, the 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 fact that the, we're dealing with these two the, a a thirty year long pizza litigation is not the the offbeat hook. Um, so in in 2018, a New York federal judge named Louis Stanton uh, issued the latest ruling on this long long running case, and there were. Two pending motions for summary judgment from these two sides. One accused the other one of infringing their trademarks. Um, And the judge just essentially ignores them. And instead, he issues this sort of bizarre one-page, very brief ruling that says, "Uh, nobody's going to confuse these two names. We're all good. Nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. It was was just very sort of like, I'm going to, I've sorted this out for you guys. And... But even more strangely, he included this little weird ruling that that ordered the the patent and trademark office to issue trademark registrations to the losing side. Um, nobody had asked for this, so it was just a very. That's what you want in your thirty year litigation. You want the judge to just go a little rogue, sure, give you a paragraph, sure. and tell you it's done. That's Real satisfying for everybody. Uh, totally <laughs> what you want to see. Uh, what happened after that? I mean, I imagine the parties were not happy about this. Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Second Circuit 
told him to give it another go. Uh, he they said he actually has to rule on these pending motions and offer, you know, an explanation for why he was doing this. Uh, <laughs> you know, including... he has to do his job as a judge. Right, 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 right. If only sure. he, if he had some sort of opinion on this matter that he could <laughs> share with the world. Um, uh, and he had to explain this sort of weird dictate to the trademark office. So the case gets back to Judge Stanton, and he essentially says, no. Uh, rather than Can you the... do that as a judge? Can you just be like... Nah, I'm not doing well, this. Well, Amber, we're going to get to that. Uh, ju- ju- so ju- Judge Stan writes a letter response on the docket very quickly after the Second Circuit ruling. And the quote is pretty remarkable. Quote, the judgment granted full relief to the parties and there was no purpose, even an academic one, in separately addressing the summary judgment motions. Each party received by the judgment what it sought by its motion. He later added, quote, Formal rulings on the motions could add nothing. No further explanations were needed. The results flowed directly from the absence of any likelihood of confusion. Okay, I have a lot to say at this point. So part of me at the beginning of the story was thinking about how we have often reported on big backlogs in courts, um, judges being overburdened by their docket. And so part of me was pretty sympathetic at first where it was like, oh, maybe he just did this pretty pro forma one paragraph thing because he's overburdened but now it gets all the way back to him and he's just like no i did what i did and i'm standing by it well i think what's so interesting here is if you dig into these dockets what he was trying to do was find a practical you know result that would solve this problem that clearly these two companies have been fighting for 25 30 years and his sense was that they were really at what was really at issue was sort of a subtext to the case that there was this dispute at the U S patent and trademark office. And if only he could issue this ruling that was no one's going to confuse these two. And I'm going to force the U S patent and trademark office to resolve this in a way that will deal with it. Everyone will be happy and we can all stop fighting. And it seemed like that's what he was trying to do. And there is a certain amount of logic to it. And, and when he reissued, he, now, he, he did write this whole letter that explained why that was. That quote that I read was not the only thing. But what he did then was just reissue the exact same ruling after explaining why he had done it the way that he did. It was just very bold. He just said, no, you're sure. not getting it. You're not getting it. I, I, I The thing I did made sense. <laughs> We're doing it again. <laughs> so it, it gets back to the Second Circuit. And you would think that they would be mad about this, but they appeared to be more sort of befuddled by it um in a ruling this week they they called it a puzzling situation and in pretty shockingly polite terms they they overruled him but they tried to seem they tried to explain that look we are sympathetic to what you were trying to accomplish you were thinking outside the box it did seem like you were trying to cut through some of the bs and get to the underlying issues but you can't just ignore what we said you, can't, you, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like it, it just, I, I could see, it just felt like they were like, Oh God, judge Stanton has been on the bench for a very long time. He, um, has a particular way about him. I think that they were showing a lot of respect for a long time jurist. And this, to me, this has such like parent kid vibes where you're like, ah, oh, I understand, but like, can't you just follow the rules? Yeah. Uh, but also, but <laughs> 
also sort of flipping that dynamic, you know, that he is a, you know, he has been on the bench for a long time. So I think they didn't want to lecture this judge who yeah, sure. really knows what he's talking about. They, they didn't want to be too heavy handed. I thought it was a great showing of sort of appellate restraint. I mean, I th- one of the things I was having a conversation with some folks on Twitter about this and some very sort of accomplished um, appellate attorneys were saying, look, you can see stuff. You'll see stuff like this. And appellate ju- courts are much meaner about it in a usual situation. That was the real remarkable thing here. Um, but what they did say ultimately was, look, you cannot just not rule on pending motions. That is, it, it is in violation of not only the federal rules of civil procedure, but also our mandate. We told you you had to rule on these things. <laughs> yeah. Quote, it seems Judge Stanton believed our colleagues had overlooked the logic that undergirded his prior decision. Although we do not doubt the practicality of his solution, the fact remains that the district court continues to elide the purpose, if not the plain text requirements, of the federal rules of civil procedure. I'm so glad that it ended that way because I can imagine a scenario where they got ticked off enough to be like, and now it's back to you again. Yeah, you don't want, it's just, there's no value in like arguing over who has the, you know, the authority here. Absolutely. The appellate court has the authority. The case is over. And does that mean 30 years of pizza litigation is also now concluded? Well, it it wasn't a 30-year case. It was a 30-year series of cases. So, oh, so uh, maybe you not. Know, who, knows what, <laughs> who knows what's coming next for the two dueling uh, patsies? I, I, I can't imagine there's enough money in either of these trademarks for this to keep going. But, you know, you would have said Sometimes that after the first... Sometimes it's not about spending the money, Bill. Sometimes exactly. it's, it's truly about the fight. Exactly. So (laughs) thanks for bringing that one. What a great one to end the show. For sure. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Chris Villani, and our contributing reporter, Jackie Bell. We'd also like to give a shout out to the entire surveys and data team, which did such a great job in the diversity snapshot. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you'd like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.